listening to BuddhistGeeks.com, March 26, 2007. Episode 12, Take Your Seat, The Importance of Boundaries in Practice. In this episode, Gwen Bell continues her interview with Fleet Mall. Fleet talks about how we work with boundaries of the self and of the heart in the Maitri, Bodhicitta, and Tonglin practices. This is part two of a two-part series. This podcast is sponsored by the Peacemaker Institute. Please visit peacemakerinstitute.org to learn how you can get involved in ongoing trainings with engaged Buddhist teacher Sensei Fleet Mall. The next intensive three-day training is March 29th through April 1st, and Buddhist Geek listeners who mention this ad will receive a $50 discount. Take your practice beyond the cushion by learning the tools of skillful means that will allow you to engage in social change work in a sustainable way. PeacemakerInstitute.org Does Zen open your heart? That's a good question. Um, You know, Zen, it's hard to just typify Zen as one thing. There's a lot of flavors and streams of Zen. And by using the term Zen, we're referring to Japanese Zen. Um, Overall, generally, it, it, it... tends to be associated with a somewhat um, not-so-heart-centered approach to awakening and really being focused more towards prajna or insight and wisdom uh, or that quality of wisdom, the insight quality of wisdom, than, uh, than compassion or, or bodhicitta, awakened heart. Clearly, Zen is in the Mahayana tradition, and Zen is grounded in the Bodhisattva vow. So, um, you can't really escape that Zen is also about um, that any notion of enlightenment in Zen is is beyond any kind of personal liberation, and certainly grounded in the notion of 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 developing bodhicitta. But the focus in Zen tends to be on. Uh, liberation through either you could look at it in different ways liberation through deconstructing the self so that and and in the process of that or the the gradual path in zen would be deconstructing the self and then realizing non-self the sudden path would be direct insight into the nature of mind or non-self and uh whereas and in Tibetan Buddhism and the other tradition in which I practice and which is really my, my primary spiritual home, the you have all that very strongly, and at the same time you have a constant and, and very strong emphasis on cultivating bodhicitta and compassion. I mean the Tibetan lamas they talk about bodhicitta and compassion all the time. They also talk about prajna and insight and but it's it's I think it's more balanced in the Tibetan tradition and than at least my experience of Zen. What that says about, you know, people who actually have attained uh, profound realization in Zen, um, whether they, you know, again get to the same place, or whether that realization is always missing a little heart, I, I don't know. Um, one of the my, one of the real highlights of my recent trip to Japan, where we first met, was meeting Suzuki Roshi's son. Uh, who's also known as Suzuki Roshi, and who's the 
Tanto Roshi at uh, Eheji, uh, one of the two principal monasteries of uh, Soto Zen, the one founded by Dogen in the 12th century. And Tanto Roshi means that he actually uh, is in charge of practice in the Zendo. He's in charge of the actual Zazen meditation training of the young priests and monks in training there. And he had such a beautiful quality to him, so solid, mountain-like, and at the same time, just smiling and giggling and heartfelt and ordinary and big-hearted, big-mind. And he felt, in many ways, very similar in, to me in presence to, to some of the obviously realized Tibetan lamas and teachers that I've met, very similar qualities. So, you know, um, I'm sure that that uh, you know that the whole deal or the whole enchilada is available in, in both those traditions, but there does seem to be less emphasis on the heart in Zen, for better or worse. How do we develop bodhicitta? I mean, how does how do either of these practices? Yeah, how can you come to that place of compassion? Well, in my own training in Tibetan Buddhism, and particularly in, in Chogen Trungpa's approach to that, the Kagi Nyingma schools and the Shambhala path. It begins with cultivating Maitri, or loving kindness. And ideally, one's basic meditation practice, correctly practiced, cultivates Maitri. Or to begin with, just towards oneself. A sense of basic friendliness or unconditional friendliness towards one's own being. I mean, just the fact that one's willing to begin to try to cultivate a spiritual life uh, cultivate the discipline of a meditation practice, give oneself that time just to, to one's willing to relate with beingness rather than constant doing, which is the only thing our Western culture really honors, is really an act of generosity towards oneself to begin with. And then secondly, all meditation instruction, I think in all traditions, and very specifically in this tradition, um, a core part of the instruction is that you're developing a non-judgmental awareness. So the idea is you're using some meditation technique to be present, focusing on the breath or some other object of mindfulness, gradually training the mind to slow down and be present, sort of taming the mind so you can actually place your focus somewhere and keep it there, place your attention somewhere and keep it there. And then just sort of being with what's there, witnessing your experience, bearing witness to your experience moment to moment, and and beginning to make a relationship with your state of mind and with all the kind of geography of your state of mind. and and uh, and but the idea is that you do that without judgment so whatever arises um you're not picking and choosing you try to bring an unbiased non-judgmental view to your experience and of course that's not what we do so first thing you notice is that you are judging so you try to let that go or you judge you find yourself judging that you're judging and somewhere along the line you try to let go but you're trying to cultivate this space of non-judgmental awareness so if you're successful in doing that you're beginning to develop the sense of maitri also, because you're getting glimpses of egolessness, because through bringing mindfulness and awareness to your own state of being, to your own experience, you're beginning to experience those gaps in the, what appears to be the continuity of the self or of the ego or the kind of small mind. And you experience moments of beingness that just aren't that self-referenced. And these kind of gaps, which are always there that we don't usually recognize, um, are sometimes referred to as gaps or egolessness. And they begin to kind of aerate your state of mind and also allow you to have a, a greater sense of humor about things. You kind of gain that bird's eye perspective where things that we usually take so seriously seem 
uh, not so serious, even absurd at times. And so there's a combination, of there's a sense of lightening up about oneself. So the combination of non-judgmental awareness, the quality of lightening up about oneself that is a natural result of, of cultivating egolessness in one's practice, uh, and, this, and, then, and then this basic generosity towards oneself of having a practice altogether is cultivating this attitude of loving-kindness. And, and as you begin to become less self-focused, because through your practice you're sort of deconstructing and, and sort of wearing out that, that, that really um, tight self-focus that most of us begin with, naturally your your focus begins to shift outward. I mean, the less you're self-absorbed, the more you naturally become more aware of what's out there. Uh, what's out there starts to become more compelling because you're not so caught up with the dialogue between your ears. And since you've developed a sense of basic warmth towards yourself, when you begin to move outward, when your attention shifts more outward, that begins to manifest as a certain quality of warmth towards others, towards the world, which is the, the beginnings of compassion. It's the beginnings of, of just having an open heart towards the world. And and so I think, you know, cultivating bodhicitta, cultivating compassion arises very organically from one's practice in that way. Then, at the same time, you have practices that are specifically designed to cultivate bodhicitta, like Tan Lin in the Tibetan tradition, or exchanging self for other on the medium of the breath. And there you're working, it's a pretty radical practice actually, you're working to reverse the logic of ego what we would normally push away and we would just soon others experienced <laughs> uh, were actually think unpleasant things, things that are threatening to us we were willing to take that in and the things we would want to usually hold on to for ourselves we let go we're, we're extending those to others completely reversing the usual logic of ego and, and, it, and working with the boundaries of the self and the boundaries of the heart and so cultivating, cultivating that. And then the other thing is that in the Tibetan tradition, almost all liturgies and practices that you do, from you know, basic taking refuge to taking the Bodhisattva vow, you know, morning and evening type liturgies, to when you're doing sadhana practices, all have all these things built into it where you're taking refuge, where you're reciting the Bodhisattva vow, which is about cultivating bodhicitta. And then they have very specific liturgies in, that are designed to develop this motivation to to have your practice grounded in a motivation to liberate other beings rather than having it being grounded completely in a liberation uh, for your own liberation or that to, clearly it is about liberating ourselves but so that we could become a vehicle for the liberation of others so both you know it's it's making your practice about all beings and so there's constant reminders of that in the Tibetan tradition in, in all the liturgies and all the practices it's this constant reminder it's about compassion, it's about bodhicitta it's about awakening all beings Tonglen, if we can get back to that for a second um, in the practice of Tonglen coming into other people's suffering or like taking on other people's suffering or pain um, I have a lot of practice with that and find that I can like drop down into others' suffering and mm -hmm. then get stuck in it mm -hmm. So, how do we get unstuck? Like, once we take that on, um, how do we lighten up again? Well, I think there's a difference between taking on other suffering in that way and doing Tonglen practice. Um, sometimes when we have a tendency, and I'm not speaking about you personally, but for any of us, when we have a tendency to kind of easily take on the suffering of others, that Part of it, I think, is a natural... It's interesting. Part of it, is, I think, is a natural open-heartedness and a natural sensitivity, which is wonderful. And we all 
know people in our lives or to what extent ourselves there's this quality of someone who's just kind of tuned into others more than others and, and that's a wonderful natural quality and sometimes that's also accompanied by kind of in modern psychological terms what we would say a lack of boundaries or good boundaries um we don't use the term boundaries in Buddhist practice, and it, and it might even sound antithetical if someone would bring that up in a kind of a confusion of paradigms. But what we certainly do talk about in, in the Shambhala teachings is, is taking one's seat, really taking one's seat in one's own being. And meditation training, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche talked about learning to hold your seat, to take your seat and hold your seat. Uh, which actually, the metaphor comes from the dressage tradition, which is an equestrian tradition, where instead of post- posting when the horse is at a canter or a gallop or, or a trot even, um, with your, your buttocks rising and up and down off the seat, you, you keep your buttocks right in the saddle, and you, you have to learn to move with the horse. And so the, the trainer may be yelling at you, hold your seat, hold your seat. So he used that metaphor because his wife was a dressage master, and is, and... So it's the idea of how to take your seat properly and how to hold your seat. So it's very much you're in your own being. You know, you're making a relationship with your own being in meditation. And you're learning to really sit in your own skin and really be present within yourself. There's a sense of, of integrity within within your own being and ability to kind of just be there and not necessarily need confirmation from anyone or anything else. There's a word I'm reaching for. It's not coming to me, but... Um, but that's what you're really learning to do in practice. And of course, Zen practice equally would be very strongly that way. And a real sense of developing the independence of, of being able to sit there in your own being and not need confirmation from anyone or anything else. Um, the Buddha himself, you know, when initially challenged about his enlightenment, well, how do you know you're enlightened? He put his hand on the earth, the famous, famous earth witnessing mudra, and said, the earth is my witness. In other words, he didn't need to have anyone else confirm his own state of being. And so there's that quality. And then from that place, you're then extending and opening your heart to others. So it's not an unconscious merging or, or an unconscious letting in and then being overwhelmed by. It's sitting squarely in one's own being and then very consciously beginning to uh, open the boundaries between self and other and beginning to work with those boundaries. And to the extent that you're taking on the suffering of others, it's self-liberated. You know, you're breathing in the suffering of a particular being or of all beings or, you know, whatever you might be working with in a practice. You breathe that in and then it's immediately self-liberated. And on the outbreath, what comes out is basic goodness, Buddha nature, your basic sanity, basic healthiness. Um, and so there's this, there's this self-liberated quality. It doesn't stick. If it's sticking... Then, then your practice is not correct. So, it, so it's kind of different. Um, I think people who uh, can very easily kind of deeply experience the suffering of others, I think they have a a natural ability and affinity for that kind of practice. But what they probably need is to do a lot of work to really learn to take their seat properly and hold their seat with their own experience so that they're doing Tomlin from that place. And the extent that they are exchanging with another in terms of like taking on, that it's, it's done consciously and it's self-liberated within the practice. So probably a lot more basic mindfulness awareness training. And that's why 
with Tomlin practice, in one way, it's wonderful that it's gotten out into the world, the extent to which it is. So many people have heard about it, primarily from the work of Pema Chudrin, somewhat from Sully Rimshay's book, Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. And at the same time, uh, I and I know others are often uh, are concerned that people don't treat the practice with the respect it deserves. It's not a beginner's practice. To do Tonlin properly, one has to have accomplished a certain stability of one's mindfulness awareness training, or you really can't do the practice in any powerful way. I mean, you could do it, but in some ways it's kind of wishful thinking. It's an advanced it's, practice, isn't it? It is an advanced practice. It's a very radical practice. And in the way it was introduced in our Shambhala community initially, um, you did basic mindfulness awareness training and basic sitting practice for a long time, a lot of study. Uh, you had to do a datan, which is a month-long session, a 28-day session where you're just sitting like 10, 12 hours a day. You then uh, had to, at some point, uh, take refuge vows, and, and you had your own meditation instructor, a, a senior student you're working with, uh, and um, that person, you know, had to kind of agree you were ready to take refuge, and you take, and then again take bodhisattva vows when they felt you were ready, when you both feel you're ready, and then you went to seminary, which is where you're, if you complete seminary, is when you were introduced to the Vajrayana path, and you actually received transmission from the teacher. But it was at seminary that you were introduced to Tonglin, and you do a lot of it. But it was the idea that someone had a lot of training and a foundation and basic mindfulness awareness. And I meet people today who would say, you know, oh, yeah, I just do Tonglin practice, and they've had almost no training, but they read about it in, in a book, and, you know, and it, the idea appeals to them, and I think that's wonderful. And But it, it is a very radical practice. Um, you're going right, you know, for instance, let's say you know someone who's ill uh, with cancer. You have a friend. And so you're including them in your Tonlin practice. And so you're breathing in, you know, maybe their their pain, you're breathing out your own basic health, or you're breathing out a sense of being free from pain, you're breathing in the fear and anxiety they have around their illness, you're breathing out a sense of stability and confidence, you know, and you're breathing in their cancer, and you find, oh, you know, your mind just stops right there, you know, and you, you realize, okay, right there, there's, the, there's where where the rubber really meets the road in terms of where you're really at, in terms of where you feel you begin and or you end and somebody else begins and how you manage that boundary, you know. And uh, and you should have that experience. And if you're not having that experience, you're probably, you know, uh, deceiving yourself. Um, uh, because anybody that could sit there and think they're breathing in somebody else's cancer, actually, and it doesn't create some ripple in their mind, is deceiving themselves. Um, unless they're just already some kind of natural-born saint. There may be a few people like that, but but I would question it. Um, and that's the great thing about Tom Lin, because then you know right there, okay, that's the reality of the extent of my open-heartedness and my closed-heartedness. That's where, I, you know, and, uh, you know, it's interesting. A number of years ago, there was a bunch of emails going around about Tom Lin practice that somebody was putting out, and it was going out on a bunch of lists. It was some person talking about the dangers of Tonlin and saying people shouldn't be doing Tonlin. It was very dangerous and you might actually get illness. And that's why the Karmapa died of cancer because, you know, he lived in a space of Tonlin and that's why he died of cancer. And people shouldn't really be doing that because you might end up actually taking on someone else's suffering. Oh my God. You know, 
<laughs> you know, yeah, you might. Now, actually, from what we know about Tonlin practice and nature mind, for you to actually take on someone else's suffering that way, you'd probably have to be a very advanced practitioner even to be able to accomplish a little bit of that. But that's what it's really about, you know. And and you know, would we? Could we actually imagine? Uh, you know, allowing someone else to be healthy and free from cancer and taking their place. Could we imagine that? Now that, obviously, for someone to really be able to do that, that would really be a heroic kind of lack of, you know, a, a real profound sense of selflessness. And there have been people that have seemingly manifested, and those are the people we've called saints in various traditions. Um, you know, but that's really what it's about. And it's not that doing Tan Lin practice, we should beat up on ourselves if we don't feel we're there. It's just the practice allows us to see where we're really at and then incrementally work with that boundary. Just begin to massage it a little, begin to aerate it a little, but really starting where we're at instead of some self-delusion we have about how saintly we are. You know, it's really... seeing our selfishness right in front of our face and being able to work with it. That's what's profound about the practice. And if it benefits others, that's that's a great side benefit. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com Copyright 2007 Music in this podcast provided by C for Chaos. For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.cforchaos.com Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.